entrepreneurs, business owners, professionals who seek excellence, bringing the business classroom to you. It's the Business Builder Show. Here's Marty Wolf. We still got a long way to go. Yes, we all got a long way to go. Welcome to the Business Builder Show, the show for entrepreneurs, business owners, and business leaders. I'm Marty Wolf, your host for the Business Builder Show, and alongside of me is my executive producer, Mr. D.C. Taylor, and we will be your guides on this learning journey. The Business Builder Show is distributed by C-Suite Radio, which is part of the C-Suite Network, the world's most trusted network of business executives. You can learn more about the C-Suite Network by going to their website, which is C-Suite, and that's S-U-I-T-E network.com. My special guest today is Cal Newport, one of my favorite authors. Hi, Cal. How you doing? Hey, Marty. It's uh, great to be back. Yeah, you are back. We're going to talk primarily about your book, and that is titled Deep Work, Rules for Focused Success in a Distracted World. Um, before we get there, let's kind of do a brief intro. Uh, Cal Newport coined the term deep work in a series of articles published on his popular blog, Study Hacks, Decoding Patterns of Success. Cal is a writer and an assistant professor of computer science at Georgetown University. Now, on the back of the book titled Deep Work, gentleman who I'm familiar with is Adam Grant. And here's what he says in terms of a claim for this for Cal's work. He says this, deep work makes a compelling case for cultivating intense focus and offers immediately actionable steps for infusing more of it into our lives. So let's talk about deep work, Cal. So why did you think a book like this was even necessary? What was in your mind when you started this? Well, I think there's actually a very important economic trend going on right now that is being underreported. And this book, in some sense, is inspired by my attempt to try to correct that. Because when I go uh, and survey what's happening, especially in the world of knowledge work, what becomes clear to me is that there's this skill, which I call deep work, this ability to, to concentrate intensely without distraction on really cognitively demanding tasks, that's becoming more valuable. As the, compl- uh, the economy gets more complicated, as our jobs get more complicated, as it gets more competitive, this is becoming more valuable, where at the same time, people are becoming worse at it. Mm. So we have something that's becoming more valuable at the same time that people are becoming worse at it. And, and to me, that's a big story. And I wanted to get into that. And basically, my conclusion was we could see this through a pessimistic lens or we could see it through an optimistic, maybe even opportunistic lens, which is that's actually – a big opportunity for the small number of individuals or organizations who are willing to get out in front of it and actually make deep work a, a tier one skill that they value. Yeah, you actually uh, position it to say, hey, look, at everybody's talking about how social media and the things that you talk about are, are, distraction, are, are distractions. When you kind of turn it around to say, okay, let's acknowledge that, but let's talk into why uh, this whole idea of deep work is so important. Describe, give me your definition of deep work. How do you describe that? So I describe it as the activity where you're focused without distraction for a long period of time on a cognitively demanding task. So it's when you're using your brain at the limits of its capability. Hmm. Interesting. Um, 
is is it is it that rare today that you had to write a book? It is rare. It is rare <laughs> for for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, our schedules are more fragmented than they've ever been before. I mean, we, most people don't have any periods in their schedule in which they could even perform deep work. There's just not enough free time left in the schedule. And then during the periods where we actually think we're doing focused, intense work, we're not really because we're invalidating a core piece to my deep work definition, which is without distraction. So if you are making a quick glance at an inbox, a quick occasional glance at social media at your phone in the middle of doing something cognitively demanding, that's not deep work anymore. That's a different type of work, and it's something that's going to be not nearly as productive or produce nearly as much quality as true depth, which really requires this is the one thing I'm focusing on with zero exceptions for a long period of time. Why do people fall prey to that? What is there? Uh, why do we enjoy looking at our inbox, hearing that ding? Why, why, why do we do that? Well, you know, partially we, we pat ourselves on the back because our current behavior, which I would call interrupted single tasking is better than what we used to do. So if, if you probably remember at the very beginning of the uh, IT revolution, when it hit the actual workplace where we had email or we had instant messenger, there was this multitasking craze. Yeah. Probably yeah. late nineties, early two thousands where, yeah. where people literally did multiple things at the same time. So here's my inbox open on the screen next to the word processor where I'm trying to write a big memo and I'm on the phone at the same time. And it didn't take long for people's intuition to tell them this doesn't work well. And then a lot of research came out and said, you can't multitask. You're just doing all the things worse. Yeah. And so people don't do that anymore. People are proud. I don't multitask anymore. I don't keep my inbox open at the same time that I'm working on something or writing. So in some sense, it seems like that we're doing the right thing. We used to do the wrong thing. But what new research is telling us is that the new behavior, which is you're almost single tasking, but every five to 10 minutes you do quick checks, uh, quick yeah. check inbox, quick checks phone, that can be almost as damaging. And it's because when you change your target of attention from something you're trying to do into another context, like an email inbox, and you see all those emails in there, most of which you can't answer at the moment, it would take too long, and, and yeah. you know you're gonna have to get back to it later. When you then try to bring your attention back from that quick check to the hard thing you're doing, the business strategy, the memo, the writing, the computer coding, you have this extra cognitive residue in your mind that takes a long period to clear out. So you're yeah. actually working with a cognitive impairment. So we think we're doing the right thing by almost single tasking with quick checks, but it also has almost as bad as a negative impact is actually just having all the windows open at the same time. So we, we, we do it, I think, in part because we don't realize just how damaging it actually is. Yeah. And so you mentioned in the book, and again, I'm speaking with Cal Newport, and his book is Deep Work, Rules for Focus, Success in a Distracted Word World. You say um, two core abilities for thriving in the new economy, two core abilities for thriving in the new economy. That got my attention. The ability to quick, quickly master hard things and the ability to produce at an elite, elite level. Talk to me about that. Again, thriving in the new economy. Talk to me about that. Right. Especially if we're thinking about the knowledge economy, which is getting increasingly competitive and increasingly complicated. These two things seem to show up both in sort of our intuitive survey of the landscape, as well as in the work of economists who are trying to grapple with changes in technology and automation and outsourcing that's roiling the economy. These two things tend to pop up again and again as what's going to be necessary mm -hmm. to be on the winning side of this increasingly bimodal distribution we're going to see mm -hmm. of those who are thriving in the economy 
which is the good news will be larger than the group of winners are right now versus those who are not going to be thriving. And the bad news is that's also going to be larger uh, mm-hmm. than is right now. In other words, this sort of vast middle is being pushed out to these two extremes. These two skills come up often that if you can't learn complicated things quickly, you're not going to be able to keep up with the increasingly complicated systems, processes, and ideas that really define our fast-moving economy. You're going to get left behind if yeah. you can't keep up. Yeah. And so that's important. And on the other hand, if you're not producing at an elite level, producing high-quality work, work that's, that's hard to, to farm out or replicate, producing at elite quantities and elite qualities, uh, you're increasingly in danger of being automated, you know, outsourced, or eliminated altogether sort of the brutal reality of our changing economy. So you need to be able to do those two things if you want an insurance policy for your professional life, especially in the knowledge sector. Yeah, Cal, does this apply only to college professors, uh, writers, coders? Is this apply to just about anybody? And uh, or, or talk to me about that. This whole it's idea be- of deep work, the ability to go deep on what you're focused on. Right. Well, I... I think it is increasingly broadly applicable. So the reason I bring up those two skills is, you know, as you just hinted at, deep work services both of them. That that if you look at the research, the better you are at concentrating intensely, the easier it will be for you to learn complicated things. The better you are at working in long, intense periods of concentration, the easier it will be to produce elite level work, high quality, high quantity. This is becoming relevant not just to elite knowledge level worker jobs, but in the knowledge work sector more yes. generally, that yes. if you're not doing these two things, you should be worried. If you spend most of your day, for example, sending and receiving emails, you should keep in mind that there's a lot of computer scientists sitting over here in these computer scientists labs who are getting better and better at figuring out how to automate that communication yeah. with AI. Yeah. If you're a human network router, you're going to be in trouble uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. in the new economy because the network router is the cheapest, most commodity uh, part of the network stack. You're you want tru- to do the application. You're truly being automated. <laughs> with, and, and as yes. AI comes in, uh, God knows what it's going to be like. Uh, our mutual friend, Adam Grant from Wharton, um, you refer to him a few times in the book as an example of producing at an elite level. Why, why do you bring up Adam Grant and what's, uh, kind of get specific on what you, uh, you know, in terms of your book? Adam was a great example of how uh, deep work can help you produce at the elite level. Essentially, I wanted to know how Adam was producing as a professor at the elite level he was when I met him, yeah. which was, yeah, he got to full professor, the highest level professorship at Wharton, mm. the top business school in the country, at an incredibly young age. Yeah. Uh, he's the youngest full professor they have there right now. And the way he did it is that he produces really good peer-reviewed research and at somewhat unprecedented quantities. Yeah. And so when I asked him about it, you know, Adam, how do you do this? A big part of his answer boiled down to prioritizing and respecting deep work. Yeah, wow. And so what, what he does with his schedules, he'll actually, he works on his hard stuff, the research, the peer-reviewed paper, in these long, often multi-day stretches of complete, uninterrupted concentration. And if you study the Grant approach, what you'll see is that he's not spending more hours per year than the average professor at an elite business institution like him. But the hours he's spending are spent in the state of intense, undistracted concentration. So he's able to produce more quantity and more quality per hour spent working, which is why he's able to be such a star. And, and I tell the story to emphasize that deep work is not about, it'd be nice to be less distracted, or maybe you'd be a little bit more productive. It's much more like a superpower. 
if you get good at concentrating and you prioritize it, it can have significant orders of magnitude style shifts in what you're able to produce. I love that word when I read it. I loved, I'm glad you said that. It's like a superpower. I love that. Okay. I love the way you laid out the book. Um, the second half of the book, second part, I guess is what you call it, is you actually help us with some rules. That's always good. Instruct us. Help us, Cal. And and I, there's four of them, I believe. And uh, one of the rules you talk about is work deeply. So we're talking about that, but give me some rules, if you will. Well, deep work is hard. And uh, so if you want to succeed with actually making deep work a regular part of your schedule, the, the core idea of that rule is you have to actually put things in place into your professional life to support it. Yeah. Uh, don't just hope that as you go about the normal course of your day, that there'll come periods where you say, you know what, I don't have much to do, and I'm really in the mood to focus really hard, so let's go do deep work. That strategy's not going to work. You're, you're going to do essentially zero deep work. You need much more stricter yeah. supports, and usually it means three things. One, you need some sort of scheduling philosophy. This is how and when I do deep work. This is when it integrates into my schedule. Don't leave it to chance. And then two, you probably need some rituals and rules surrounding the actual deep work sessions themselves to maximize the chance that you slip effortlessly into a state of concentration and that you're able to achieve the sort of highest levels of concentration during that deep work block. So it's a hard thing to do. So you yeah. want to give it as much help as you can. Yeah. And again, I'm going to make an editorial comment, I guess. I can't imagine how anything gets done. If you want to do something meaningful, I, I guess I don't know how you do without doing deep work. Okay. Rule number two. I made a little quick comment there on the side. Uh, rule number two, you talk about embrace boredom found this fascinating cal embrace boredom talk to me right well let's say for example you wanted to be a professional athlete your fitness would be really important right what do i eat how do i sleep you know how do i keep my body generally in shape the same thing holds in the arena of cognitive athletics if you want to use your brain to do elite level thing your sort of cognitive fitness is important what you do outside of work what you do outside of your deep work sessions to keep your brain sharp and capable of focusing for long periods of time really does matter and so when i say embrace boredom that was actually getting at one of the the core ideas in the rule which is if you have an addiction to getting a quick hit of stimuli from your phone tablet or computer at the slightest hint of boredom mm -hmm you're going to have a very hard time succeeding with deep work when you try to do it because deep work is by definition boring in yeah. the sense that it's not a lot of different novel stimuli. You're doing the same thing for a long period of time. And so embrace boredom is this, this cognitive fitness notion that you need to introduce lots of periods in your life where you're bored. Yeah. You, you crave a stimuli and you don't give it to your brain. And the entire reason you do that is to break the Pavlovian connection between <laughs> yeah. Boredom means phone. Boredom means phone. Yeah. You have to break that connection if you're going to succeed with deep work when it comes time to do deep work. And deep work to me, I'm going to keep bringing this back, is meaningful work. It's something that has a purpose and it's meaning. Those are my words, not Cal's, by the way. Okay, we're going to really hit a hot button now. Rule number three is quit social media. Get ready to defend that one, Cal. Yeah, well, yeah, I'll <laughs> tell you what. I've never had a social media account, and it turns out, 
I still have friends. I still know what's going on in the world. I still sell books. I still have collaborators. I don't know. According to the media accounts, that should be impossible. I should be in a cave somewhere, friendless, sick and, you're and alone. On the, and you're on the Business Builder show without social media. Oh, my goodness. How did this happen? Talk <laughs> how did to it, me. There was a mistake in the system. Facebook will rectify that. <laughs> how did yeah. that algorithm go bad, huh? How did the algorithm go bad, yeah. Okay, talk to me. Quit social media in your book. Give me, uh, give me the description. Well, here's, here's the broader point there, which is if you use your brain to make a living, uh, I think you need to be very careful about what tools and services you give access to your brain, especially to your time and attention. And you should be wary in particular of tools like Facebook and Twitter that are engineered to be as sticky and addictive as possible. So yeah, the, yeah. the idea I give in this chapter is you need to raise your threshold for allowing a tool into your life. You actually need to see substantial, positive, specific benefits that tool will give that outweigh the negative. So for something like Facebook or Twitter, if you know you run a company that brands on social media or if you're a media personality and it's very important you cultivate an audience, then when you do that, that cost-benefit analysis, you might say, okay, it's important to me I'm on Twitter. Yeah. But let's say you don't. Let's say you're a, a computer programmer right. for Google. Or right. something, and actually, what really matters is your ability to concentrate for long periods of time and be a 10x coder. Right. Then you might be very wary and say, you know, these things are engineered. This app is engineered to to be as addictive as possible, and and why would I let that into my cognitive space right now? I want to respect my time and attention a little bit more. So, yeah. uh, when I say quit social media, that's actually referring to the suggestion that you take a a 30 day period where you you quit all your services without telling anyone. Yeah, I loved it. Yeah, and then after those 30 days, you step back and say for each. Was my life worse for not having it? And two, did anyone notice yeah. I wasn't on there? To kind of break the myth that I have this audience that that you know is desperate to hear my latest missive. So <laughs> I'm making a call for greater uh, scrutiny yeah. on what let into your time and attention. Just because Silicon Valley released something and just because it got some attention you know, in the Silicon Valley media – doesn't mean you have to use it. You're not obligated to use these <laughs> products if you don't actually have a really good reason. So it's sort of a call for a little bit more sanity in that part of our life. I'll give a shout out, amen, brother, to that. Just because they're saying it doesn't mean you should do it. You know, yep. what, what really matters in your life? Okay, last rule is drain the shallows. When I wrote you an email asking you, and you did respond to my email, thank you, and it was about, I, I gave you, I think I gave you compelling reasons why you should talk to me and come on this show. So was my email a shallow email or was it did it have some content? So talk to me about rule number four, drain the shallows. Well, it was a great email. And, and drain the shallows is, I mean, the idea is uh, if you let the non-deep work metastasize to the point where it takes all your waking hours, then you can't do deep work. You, you can't do the stuff that's actually going to let you get ahead. And so I call the non-deep work stuff shallow work, not to be pejorative, but just as the antonym of deep, right? If it's not deep work, let's just call it shallow work. Yeah. A lot of that stuff's necessary, but I think the right way of seeing it is if you work for someone else, it's, you know, shallow work is what prevents you from getting fired. Deep work is what gets you promoted. Or if you run your own oh. company, shallow work is what keeps you from going bankrupt this quarter, but it's deep work that's what triples your revenues the yeah. quarter ahead. Yeah. And so I want everyone to have a wary relationship with the shallow work in their life, to, to keep it focused on what's necessary, to get rid of what's not necessary, and then to be ruthlessly efficient about the unavoidable shallow work, 
all with an eye towards preserving enough time that you can do a non-trivial amount of deep work and actually uh, move the needle as opposed to just staying in place. So that whole rule is about different hacks, tips, and strategies for getting your arms around the different shallow work obligations in your professional life. You said the word hacks. You uh, have a blog called Study Hacks. Um, Let's give a shout out to that. And how do people learn more about you, Cal? Where do you want them to go? Well, so calnewport.com is my website, and that's where you'll find the Study Hacks blog, where I I blog about all of these uh, type of issues regularly. It's also where you can find out more about me and my books. Yeah. And uh, the previous book that actually is the first time we talked, which uh, I've told people actually changed the way I think. That's kind of a big deal because I'm kind of older and I, it's hard to change the way I think. Yeah, I want to give a shout out to your, uh, to your first book, So Good They Can't Ignore You, Why Skills Trump Passion in the Quest for Work You Love. I love that book. Again, Cal Newport, both books are great. We are talking about his book right now, Deep Work. Um, we're talking about professional, uh, our professional lives primarily. How does the idea and the concepts we're talking about, how is that affecting or positively affecting personal lives? How has it affected your life or friends of yours? Talk to me about personal part of this. I think there's really two impacts. One is, and I write about this in the book, is that for a lot of different reasons, when your professional life has more deep work in it, it's more centered on deep work, it generates a greater sense of meaning and satisfaction with your life. And this was actually something that surprised me, but it, the signal for this was crystal clear in the research literature, that it's we're wired as a species for craftsmanship. And when we're spending our time working hard on something that we're well-trained for and, and producing things of value, life in general becomes better. You just see the same events in a new light. You're, you're more satisfied with your life. Things seem more meaningful. So, so that's the first way that deep work overspills into your personal life, but also more and more readers are writing to me about how they're directly applying these principles to their personal life. So they can think about time with their kids or interaction with their spouse or working on a hobby uh, outside of work as through this deep, shallow perspective and doing more things with complete focus and presence as opposed to fracturing Mm. their time outside of work. Well, I'm kind of with my kids, but I'm kind of on my tablet and I'm sort of watching the show, but I'm also, you know, checking Twitter at the same time that when they are more deliberate about what they do with their time, more meaningful things with greater in, uh, presence and focus, that they're getting much more meaning, satisfaction, happiness out of that time outside of work as well. So I, I think underneath these sort of professional ideas that knowledge work is evolving, this is the key to a competitive advantage there's some timeless ideas that are that are providing a foundation. And it's from this timeless foundation that we're sort of bubbling up these different applications. So I think we're just surfing on the currents here of, of, a, of, a, of a much deeper ocean of, of ideas and meaning. We need to wrap up, Cal, but uh, here's a question that's uh, maybe from left field, but I know you'll be ready to ask for it. What can we expect in the future? We mentioned artificial intelligence and uh, technology coming at us in waves. Uh, well, what's your viewpoint of what, what can we expect in the future? Well, I mean, I, I think in the future we're going to see that, that more, of the, more of the efforts in our professional life that aren't requiring depth, in other words, aren't requiring you to apply skills that were hard won and are applied creatively and with great focus are going to be automated and eliminated. Yeah. And so the, the knowledge work 
uh, office of, of the future, and I don't really know quite how far to go into the future here, but my prediction would be the knowledge work office of the future is not going to be one where people are answering emails all day yeah, uh, or going back and forth in meetings all day, just for the simple fact that if we think of knowledge work in an industrial metaphor and instead of investing in machinery, you invest in brains and these capital investments produce value, the way we're working now is just very inefficient. Mm. It, producing, I think, a low return on the investment we're making into human brains. And technology is going to come in and help us get a lot more out of that investment. And I think it's going to be good for the workers themselves when you can be freed from the shackles of ad hoc logistics and moving information around and and trying to mix together 19 different roles and 10 different conversations. and Everything's ad hoc and everything's unstructured. And instead say, I'm just going to focus on this thing that I'm really good at. it's going to make work for us much more meaningful in addition to being much more productive for the company. So that's my vision. And I think it's actually an optimistic one. Uh, And I completely agree. Uh, Let's not worry about it. Let's not cower from it. Let's embrace it. And uh, if you haven't already read, uh, I suggest both of Cal's book. You're a professional. You're a business owner. Uh, Anything relating to business, you got to read this book. And its title is Deep Work. Rules for Focused Success in a Distracted World. So, Cal Newport, again, the best place to reach you is your website, calnewport.com. That's right. Cal, thanks so much for being part of the Business Builder Show. It's been a delight. Thanks, Marty. I enjoyed it. So you have been listening to the Business Builder Show, the show for entrepreneurs, business owners, and business leaders. You can find us on C-Suite Radio. And again, we are part of the C-Suite Network. So on behalf of myself and D.C. Taylor, my executive producer, thank you so much for listening. And Cal Newport, special thanks. Have a great week. Bringing the business classroom to you. It's the Business Builder Show with Marty Wolf.